All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. Welcome to Learn Your English Podcast, brought to you by Learn Your English. And what's interesting about PPP is because of its relationship to skill acquisition theory, it keeps coming back. Even me, I keep trying to stop talking about it. I made a fundamental point that were two basic points that it isn't non-communicative. And secondly, the research evidence isn't simply against it. It's complex, it's varied, and it's nuanced. Possibly a balance of evidence against it, but it ain't strong and it ain't the most important factor. And given that it's con- it's much more catch-onable, it's much more consistent with curricular systems around the world, what's the big problem? Let's focus on something else. And it was annoying me that people would say, when I said to people, well, sometimes I do teach PPP, people would look at me like I was mad. But that's the important thing, to be reflexive about these things, because if you're suggesting something, and I suggest it very much as, not because I think this is the most important thing about teaching and learning, but because I think that this dominance of assumptions that, oh, this is what the research is telling us, and if you're not doing it that way, you're doing it wrong. I disagree with that so strongly. Teacher Talking Time is created with support from you, our listeners. If you like the show, you like what we do, please subscribe in your favorite app, tell a friend, and leave us a review. Believe us, it goes a long way. If you're interested in contributing to the creation of the show, we also have a tip jar on Patreon. The link to that, all our social media, and our website is in the show notes. For more resources on today's topic, you can check out our podcast page online, learnyourenglish.net slash podcast. Thanks for listening. And now, back to the show. Howdy, people. This is Ajita, and I'm from India. You're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learning Your English podcast. Namaste. Mera naam Ajita hai, aur main Bharat se hoon. Aap sun rahe hain Teacher Talking Time. आपका एकमात्र पॉडकास्ट जहां आप अंग्रेजी सीख सकते हैं Okay and a big welcome on the show today to Jason Anderson and Jason is an award-winning author, researcher and educator based in the UK. In both English language teaching and mainstream education, Jason has trained and developed materials for primary and secondary teachers for UNICEF, the British Council, and many other organizations. His special interests include context-specific approaches to teacher education, both pre-service and in-service, and he works closely with organizations to ensure solutions are locally developed, appropriate, and effective. In doing so, he has done work supporting teachers in more than 18 countries across three continents. His most recent publication, entitled The Tate Model, a curriculum design framework for language teaching is a big discussion for today's episode, as well as his 2016 article titled "A Potted Sorry A, a Potted History of PPP." Jason, a big welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, uh, welcome. So, before we get into into these frameworks, I understand that you recently had a trip over to India, a working trip, I believe. Um, yeah. How was that? 
It was great, yeah. I'm lucky enough to be working there with a number of uh, really talented, really interesting teachers to understand how in, in challenging circumstances, effective teachers, however we, however we frame that term, however we uh, define effectiveness, what they're actually doing in their classrooms to build a theory of effective teaching based on practitioners um, rather than based on kind of theory. So yeah, it's going really well. Thank you. Wow. Still got lots of analysis to do there. Okay. Is that, uh, I mean, we don't want to drag this topic of the current situation on because I think it's it's well spoken about, but um, what challenges are you seeing in carrying out that project now that, you know, travel is so restricted? Well, I'm lucky because the data collection for that project is pretty much finished. Okay. There would have been some anecdotal data in terms of the end of the year, but that isn't really a big issue. Um, but I am still in contact with the teachers involved and trying to learn and understand how they are coping with the challenges they're facing and trying to provide teaching now in, in the current lockdown situation, which is actually now impossible because most of the right. kids don't have internet. Their parents have mobile phones, but they don't allow the kids to use them because they're simply too important for them oh. um, and for their contact, you know? Um, and so, you know, some of the challenges those Indian teachers are facing. Right, I, I imagine, and looking looking through your, your countries of research on your website, you, you know, in Africa, Algeria, Egypt, Kenya, Malawi, in Asia, Bangladesh, China, India, uh, Thailand, not, you know, um, countries that normally would be described as as very, very wealthy or, or, or well off in these contexts. So in talking about frame, or framing the, con- the conversation around frameworks and context specific usages and frameworks, what, this is a very broad and maybe a, an impossible question, but what challenges or what approaches do you think or are you recommending or are you seeing in places where, such as India, you know, the context is very different than what we would be teaching here, you know, in Canada, in the US, in the UK, etc. Yeah, it's a really, you're right, it's a really complex question and answer. Um, you're seeing different things. China has got a lot of research happening, and it's one place where, for example, Rod Ellis is doing research on different models from a kind of a much more scientific point of view. The reality for most developing country contexts, especially what we might call low-income countries or lower-middle-income countries, is that that ain't going to happen in the near future and nothing specific that will actually enable those teachers to solve their problems. So what we're seeing a lot more of, both in language teaching, in the third sector, in development sector, is, is, is attempts to empower those teachers to actually examine their own practice. And they're doing this through all kinds of things. Teacher research is one of them. The development of and, and the, the building, the fostering of personal learning networks is another one. Support structures for the teachers. These kind of things we're looking at much more than any kind of specific methodological framework right. in any one size fits all kind of variant. Yeah, well, the right size fits all doesn't exist, I don't think, right? Exactly. So that's, exactly. Uh, that's, the, I think that's why we keep having these discussions about frameworks and teaching and paradigms and approaches and all of these things, because there isn't consensus. And as we'll get into today with PPP, things change yeah, and research exactly. change, you know. There isn't even consensus in my brain. And so, <laughs> and so when you look inside a classroom, uh, you can't even compare two lessons by the same teacher with the same group of students on the same day. Right. Not to mention even comparing two different teachers in the same school and so on and so forth, because all of these variables that you would attempt to account for and understand from a scientific perspective simply don't hold. And even if research suggests one thing, the context in which it would be used is also a crucial factor. And I watched a talk that you gave at IITEFL a few years ago about um, 
CELTA and in-service teachers in some okay. of these contexts and how perhaps mm. it's, it doesn't, it doesn't, not that it doesn't work, but it's CELTA originally, of course, designed as a pre-service training course. But why are we, to paraphrase, I hope correctly what you said, why are we using a pre-service British course to train a very experienced in-service teacher. I believe it was the context was Egypt. Exactly. Correct me if I'm wrong. Exactly. But, yeah. You know, so and that... it's it's one of many. But yeah, I mean that's a very interesting kind of again a different area of my research and interest, um, and that's to do very much with the whole kind of native speaker non-native speaker issue. Mm-hmm. That that course is seen as prestigious by institutions around the world because it's got native speaker credibility to it. The Cambridge CELTA. And therefore, a lot of non-native speaker teachers who are actually effective, fully qualified teachers, often with a year's worth of uh, training uh, and, and qualified to teach in the state schools in that context, are being asked to take a course that isn't relevant, wasn't defined for, designed for them. And that isn't necessarily a criticism of the CELTA itself. I think there's a lot going for it in terms of what it does or the CERTIS or the Trinity option. But it's just a, this question of what's actually something which is constantly there that I see time and time again in my work, that we see models of how to teach and learn being disseminated from the kind of the native speaker anglophone centers into contexts where almost nothing of what of what created that model exists in terms of the contextual variables. Beautiful. And of course, <laughs> I, I mean, I think, at least speaking for myself, the students that I have, I, I feel very privileged because for the most part, they want to be in that classroom. They're, I teach adults, I don't teach children. They want to be there in many, with many contexts around the world, you know, in Egyptian context, Indian, etc. That may not be the case for teachers. So the approach, you know, whatever the communicative approach means, we'll get into that later because it's also a, a point of contention. That yeah, might not work. Yeah. It may not be appropriate. I, I, I remember, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I put it in that paper, but... Um, one of the Egyptian teachers said to me, he was working in Saudi, and here, when you're an Egyptian teacher working in Saudi, there's all kinds of kind of relationship issues to do with that between you and the students. But he, one of the students said to him, look, teacher, just give me the cream. Don't make me make it. And this is an Arabic saying, which means I don't want to have to work for this I see. in order to learn the language. Just put it in my head, please. And that kind of reminds me of myself as a student learning French mm. in school. And, and the reality of what probably is 95% of language learners around the world, they're in primary and secondary classrooms. Right. And they're not learning languages because they've chosen to. They're learning languages because it's on the syllabus. Some of them may really enjoy it and want it and understand its relevance, but that isn't dictating why they're there. For sure. And that goes into extrinsic and intrinsic motivation, of course. And mm. and who's compelling that? Is it parental? Is it really themselves? And maybe even for extrinsic reasons, but that's another thing. So that's kind of how I wanted to frame our conversation today, because you know, going away from that one size fits all in the PPP model today takes so much criticism, at least publicly in our industry. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to, to get that out there and say, well, let's, it's context specific. We always say as teachers, when we teach classes that we have to do needs analysis of our students, but maybe we should be doing needs analysis of the approach and the frameworks that we choose to use as well, because just because I use a task-based model for one class and it worked doesn't mean that perhaps it can work for, for all, or maybe it can, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, mm. But your, your paper of the PPP paradigm and in, in, in, in your view, kind of a resurgence per se of it, but the history of PPP, how it started through the seventies and to now it's taken on many different facets or different phases, hasn't it? 
Yeah, it has. Yeah. And it's a, it was, I mean, just to provide a little bit of, of background in that paper, one of the, there was two kind of key points I was making there. A lot of what happens with PPP, especially people from coming from a task-based perspective, which I always have to say, I'm not against. I just think it's about horses for courses and both of these can and do work. I like that phrase. In complexly different ways. Um, you know, but one of the things about PPP is it's been kind of demonized as the straw man which people use to position themselves and to position things like task-based language teaching or many other approaches, not just TBLT, as being better. And therefore they have to characterize it. And some of the characterizations that are made are simply false. I'm very interested in the history of language learning and teaching. And one of the bits of research I did was to find out where it came from. And as I suspected, it originates with communicative language teaching. Uh, the original model is provided in a, um, a book called Teaching Oral English by Don Byrne from mm -hmm. 1976. But what is really interesting about it is that the PPP model itself originates in an earlier model by a guy called Julian Dakin. Dakin died when he was quite young. But what is really important here is Dakin developed that model while working in schools in Scotland with a certain Pitt Corder. At the very same time in the late 1960s, when Pitt Corder was coming up with the ideas that went into his paper on the seminal paper, which influenced the start of SLA on the importance of errors and how they're an important part of the learning process. And therefore, the model that Dakin was developing at that time, which is uh, presentation practice development testing, the development stage was that opportunity for the errors to be made. That was like the task stage. Um, that was actually the, probably the classrooms where Corder, according to Howard, one of the greatest authorities of the history of language teaching, at least in the UK, that was probably where Corder was doing his research. So PPP isn't some kind of antithetical thing to communicative language teaching. It's there at the foundations of it. And the, the very important point here is that that production phase in PPP, what they can call development, what we call production in the presentation practice production of PPP, that production phase would not have been approved of under the vast majority of audiolingual approaches to teaching and learning, the kind of the Brooks argument, without wishing to create an alternative straw man, because there's a lot of rubbish talked about audiolingual teaching as well that simply isn't true. The links between that and behaviorism, for example, is rubbish. And, and it's been shown to be by a couple of recent papers. Um, I'm not sure if one's published, but I was in review of that one. It's very interesting, <laughs> but one has been published already. And, and it's, you know, that's another kind of straw man that's been simply mischaracterized right. with history. But the key point being that that approach will never allow for the third phase of PPP. That is very much part of the communicative belief, right or wrong, and I'm pretty sure it's right, that errors are an important part of learning and opportunities to communicate meaningfully help us as language learners, especially when it comes to spoken language, to develop our ability to, to, um, to use language effectively. Yeah, I hope that's universally understood and accepted that errors are maybe the most important part of language learning, or just learning in general, forget language, but mistakes is how... This is how we learn. I find that fascinating that the PPP came from a way to make language learning more communicative. So the other, the other point I was going to say is the other thing I mentioned in that and in a previous paper on PPP is a little bit about the fact that the research evidence back in the 70s and 80s, it was very much influenced by Krashen. And mm -hmm. at that time, Krashen was kind of saying, the basic point was saying, oh, teachers actually, stop teaching them, just give them access, give them opportunities for exposure and production, and they will learn language. And that's, to some extent, true. It does happen. But what's happened since then, since the early 1980s, and Mike Long was part of this, is that, that people have said, no, actually, we do need some explicit focus on the language. 
and the task-based model follows what we know from the acquisition of grammar for spoken usage in the literature and only that. Um, that this key point that, that learners won't necessarily learn it in the order that we teach it, the so-called natural order hypothesis, that we need to allow that natural learning to happen and to provide the focus on form or the explicit in, uh, instruction as and when that happens. And the PPP model, of course, is, is, is oppositional to that in the sense that right. it requires the pre-selection of forms, in other words, some kind of synthetic grammatical syllabus, which is then imposed on the language, um, which is then imposed on the, on the curriculum or rather on the scheme of work, as it should be called. Uh, sure. People like Atlas and Long confuse words like curriculum, syllabus, <laughs> scheme of work. They're completely different things. Um, um, but but it's the scheme of work which the teacher needs to focus on, and that can be dealt with as according to the learners. So so it's very important, you know, th this important point. And of course, the research evidence has been coming back. And whilst I think that it is, still is probably in favour of that when it comes to spoken grammar learning, there is a lot of important evidence that's showing that, for example, a very important paper of 2010 by Spada and Tomita, a meta-analysis by high-quality meta-analysis by experienced authors which showed that really focus on form, this kind of reactive, uh, responsive approach to helping learners with, with grammar, um, didn't really show, there wasn't really evidence that it was more effective than focus on forms. And there mm -hmm. have been important papers since then that have done that. But the key point I think here is that if this was a really, really important point of language learning, we would have much more definitive evidence after 30 or 40 years. And almost every authority in the psychocognitive SLA literature arguing for it, and I know a number of studies which are seriously biased towards it that still don't find an effect size positive for it. So I think, I think the key point here is that you've tried, we've tried, there have been numerous studies, but we're still not finding a really important difference. And when you compare that to some other simple factor like motivation, and you suddenly realize that if a learner is actually learning in lessons where they believe that what they're doing happens, what we might call a placebo effect, then, then that mm. is quite likely to have a much more stronger impact, given we know the importance of motivational language learning, than whether you choose to do the grammar teaching before or after the task. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's all fascinating research. I think one thing that comes up now is the idea of, of the zone of proximal development in terms of... Mm -hmm allowing students to learn what they're cognitively ready to learn. And we can't, we can't see that. Whereas I think the one big, the biggest criticism of PPP is that we're prescribing the language, we're presenting the language, we're choosing what to teach and that maybe the, the zone of proximal development isn't taken into account. How might you respond to, to that kind of critique? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I read a lot of Russian and Vygotsky's Zona Proximalnoi Razviti, as it's properly called, ah. is, is misunderstood a lot. Um, I, I, Vygotsky wasn't talking about language acquisition as a second, second or, or additional language learning. He was talking about very young children's uh, development. He was talking about learning itself, language as well, but first language and how language and thought interrelate. That's what he applied it to. And I wouldn't want to draw upon that as a metaphor for what happens in language learning contexts, in language classrooms. It's a fascinating idea. And very importantly, as much as I love it, we don't have any real evidence to support whether it does or doesn't exist. It's one of those metaphors that's become this colorful. And we've gone on a lot to, to, to draw upon it to talk about all kinds of learning. So I, I prefer to step away from that. But there is the key point that you're making here is that if we're prescribing choosing what they learn when they're not ready for it, they may not learn it, right? 
Right. And this is the point which is made by over and over again by Rod Ellis and by Mike Long, that we can't simply choose what needs to be learned if it has to happen naturally. Well, actually, that depends. Um, there are some important factors within individual learners, um, one called grammatical inferencing ability, that we do know that there are some learners who can actually seem to acquire a bit of language as and when it's taught much better than others. So that's a variable that changes. But, the, but there's two key points I would make here, and it's a point which I make in, in the, the paper on Tate. First of all, uh, sorry, the response to Ellis' paper, the more recent one. First of all, that is only talking about learning for spoken usage. When it comes to learning for written usage, in other words, 50% of language usage, in, in the sense of just drawing a straight line down the middle, um, then in fact, we can draw upon explicit knowledge till the cows come home. Because if I write you an email, I can pause for as long as I want to mm -hmm. think about something, to draw upon a grammar book. And we know there's tons of evidence that learners do this when they're writing. So first of all, it simply isn't true for that. And that side of language learning has been whitewashed out of communicative language teaching because communicative is, is essentially obsessed with spoken language learning, which requires the implicit learning that, that is, is centralized here. Um, but things are changing. Think about the vast majority of learners around the world. Certainly the learners I know in China and India, the vast majority of them are using English far, far more in written contexts. If we add on South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, guess what? We've got about 90% of language learning that happens around the world. And these people need language for written usage. They need to read texts in their own education. Right. They need to write emails. They need to communicate. And so all of that all of that truth, if you like, is simply not true for, for, for, for all of that written language use. And we haven't even talked about the social use of language, the complexity of diglossic societies like parts of India where English is used as a written language for communication with friends on the internet rather than other languages because of its neutrality and so on. Um, and it's really important to recognize, first of all, that written language just doesn't apply. But the, the, the actual, if you like, the, the, the relevance of this to uh, spoken language is, is only still part of it because that's only true about grammar. It isn't true about lexical learning and everybody agrees this. We were discussing in our emails about Nations research and he's established, as have all the researchers on Lexis, that Lexis is completely amenable to a synthetic curriculum. And if you've ever learned a foreign language yourself, have you ever learned any languages from scratch? Yeah, Spanish. Spanish, right. So the yeah. first stage of learning Spanish, I bet you were just hammering the Lexus, right? I was. I yeah. I, I, I immersed my I lived in a I lived in Costa Rica for about four oh, years. Oh right, that's different. Wow. Yeah, that's um, that may actually be different, but I bet you still had some vocab cards or a notebook. That's the first thing I did. Uh I like to tell people, but it's not true. I like that I just went out and I talked to everybody and, and started conversing, but that was stage two. Stage one was I bought some books at the library. Yeah. I went home and I went on Google and I uh, translated the the conjugations of the verbs and I wrote my sentences and about two or three yeah. weeks later I went out and had some confidence to talk to people but that's exactly that's the reality that's, that's a synthetic curriculum which you've imposed on yourself there mm -hmm. um, and of course we might talk about needs analysis but the reality is the first stage of language learning that synthetic curriculum is going to involve the same 200 odd words pretty much identically for everyone you can't get beyond that and so the, you know we tend to forget this and having studied in my life I've studied 14 different languages I've only made wow. it to anywhere near fluency in, in about six or seven of them the majority That's of them incredible, I've forgotten but, but, but having done that myself I know that as um, Ellis uh, sorry not Ellis um, uh, 
David Crystal calls vocabulary the Everest of language learning. And this is a key point that all of that research and the assumptions underpinning the natural order theory is an assumption underpinning how we learn grammar. Right. And it doesn't apply to Lexis. So if I come back to my point that if we divide it 50-50 down the middle, between writing and spoking, written and spoken usage of language, then what they're talking about only applies to 50% of that. And if we were to divide it charitably towards grammar halfway again, what they're talking about is simply a quarter, if you like, to put it in really simple terms to make my point very crudely, <laughs> of language learning, that, that what's actually dominated the discourse and the assumptions about how we should teach and what we should teach is based on just a quarter of it, okay. of the learning, of the stuff we learn. And that's why I think that there needs to be a, a redress of the balance here. Do you then, I can infer from that, do you, do you disagree with Lewis's lexical, lex, lexicalization of grammar, grammatization of lexis? Mm, that this is, a, they, this they is are, an interesting point. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for raising that. Yeah. I think, I think, I think there's a, a great deal of truth about the fact that there is a continuum between them. But the fact is, because we have dictionaries and grammar books, whilst there is plenty of examples of how those happen, those books wouldn't exist if we didn't um, if we didn't have that difference. And as it was with your learning of Spanish, whatever you wrote down in that book to start with, you probably even wrote down a few phrases. And there's some really important research, really recent research in the SLA area that looks about the fact that sometimes learning chunks, learning lexical chunks, which include grammar, can help us to pick up bits of grammar, sometimes in ways that are even, not necessarily in line with natural order hypotheses. And this is, again, part of the emerging research, such as the research that first language does, in fact, have a massive influence on that natural order. It simply isn't true from mm. the first language perspective. The paper by um, Murakami and Alexa Pulu from 2016 shows that very, very well award-winning paper and it shows that that isn't really true when it comes to the first language issue um but you know we're, we're seeing lots of evidence which is even that the, the theory which which is used to justify a lot of these approaches to justify the idea that you can't have a synthetic curriculum is the theory which is constantly being undermined by all of this new research and this is important for me because as a teacher educator I've worked in probably 40, 50 different curriculum contexts in the world, not just in terms of my travel, but in terms of consultancy work. And, and I've yet to see a situation where a process curriculum has been defined in a way that it's actually been usable in those contexts. I've seen people try and people assume that it's being used and then I've gone into classrooms and it hasn't been working. But in the vast majority of contexts, nobody will even recognize that that's valid because of all the complex and key stakeholders involved and especially creating a national or a state level curriculum, all of those people will tend towards making the language learning curriculum look like other types of curriculum, put content mm -hmm. on it of certain types, which you know tend to lead to teachers feeling necessitated and maybe they're not but they do feel this to teach in a way that they simply segment their tap and teach to the learners in their scheme of work in the way that they actually interact with the students let's take a quick break we'll be right back developing as a teacher isn't easy it's even more challenging doing it solo if you are looking to join a passionate community of teachers who love to learn then the Learn Your English teaching membership can help. The Learn Your English membership allows teachers to develop what they want when they want to through monthly challenges, webinars, reflection tasks, 
and application to your individual teaching context, the membership brings like-minded people together from all around the world. If you love improving and taking risks in education, then join their growing community of teaching professionals today. Find out how at learnyourenglish.net backslash memberships. Hey everyone, my name is Azat Bostash and I'm from Turkey. You are listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Hey, merhaba arkadaşlar. Ben Azat Bostaş, Türk'üm. Şu anda Teacher Talking Time grubunun hazırlamış olduğu İngiliz Öğreniyorum podcast'ini dinliyorsunuz. Sure, sure. Do you think it sounds like there is, maybe this isn't the perfect phrase for it, but a Western bias in terms of the approach to teaching, where this model that that we like to, you know, task-based model has taken off in, in, in Europe, in Canada, in the U.S., yeah. that maybe we are forcing it, or, or I'm a proponent of it, I like task-based teaching and, and learning, mm-hmm. but maybe it's it's not in context like, off the top of the show, we talked about needs analysis and, and the context in which you've been working with these people in, in Egypt and, and Southeast Asia. Does task-based language teaching or, or that more task-fuller approach not work in those contexts? Good question. Well, of course, a lot of people will know that one of the earliest experiments in task-based language teaching was by Prabhu in a project which he then called the Communicational Language Teaching Project, later named the Bangalore Project, and he wrote about it in his 1987 book. And that provides the evidence which a lot of people cite to say that it can work in such contexts. Well, I've seen it working in such contexts in the classes of of really good teachers, it can work. But just to mention the point about Prabhu, it's really important to understand what Prabhu was talking about there. Prabhu's tasks were relationships between the learner and the text. In other words, there were were problems to solve in relation to a text, to look at a kind of a timetable, to work out what's the best train to take. They were meaningful tasks in relation to a text. Prabhu did not recommend, and in his 1987 book he talks about this, any interaction between learners in the classroom. He even saw the teacher as a potential way of polluting the learner's language because he perceived the teacher as being an inappropriate model for the learner. So it's important to state that what Prabhu was talking about was essentially quite a didactic approach to use of texts, but just really good activities to do with texts. Um, that said, the uh, something uh, oriented around a task-based approach can work in those contexts. Of course it can. But um, Michael Long, in his, in his uh, 2015 book, he mentions towards the end of it uh, five conditions for um, whether task-based language teaching has a future. And all out of those, I would say definitely two simply do not hold for most developing country contexts, probably three and arguably four. Um, And one of the key ones there is the expertise and the confidence of the teacher in the language use. But one thing he doesn't mention that's really, really important, you mentioned the fact that TBLT and even PPP both originate in in Western Anglophone classrooms. Hmm. There's a really important point about those, that when students come to Canada where you are, or to the UK where I am, to learn English, they tend to find themselves in multilingual classrooms. Now, have you ever taught a closed class of students with the same first language? Yes, I have. Mandarin Mandarin Chinese, yeah. Yeah, go on. What happens in terms of the challenge of that? It's a completely different classroom. Yeah, it's it's, monolingual. Fall back into L1 a lot, which in my early days of teaching, I thought, you know, I I discouraged that. But uh, I've read some of your stuff on translanguaging. I mean, the L1 is a huge tool for L2, L3 or or additional language learning. But the approach is is drastically different. Um, But I think it's it's not just about the first language. It's also about the culture of of where those students come from. So with Chinese students, the culture, the interaction in the classroom is not as pronounced as other cultures. So there's the 
the L1 issue or not issue L1 factor and mm. the cultural le- culture of learning factor to be used in account as well. Exactly. And that's that's also true. Um, and and what's interesting is that if you give learners a really good task, a really meaningful task, the kind of task that is being suggested helps learners to use the language and to provide opportunities for the focus on form that, that leads to learning, um, to lead to implicit learning and spoken language use. Then the learners naturally, I was, I was watching a lesson recently, in fact, just today, where one teacher gave the students a task where they all had map books. She was an English teacher and she asked them to bring in their geography map books. And they were all, they, each group had to give another group the name of a place to find in the map book. And of course, what actually happened okay. was the students just, just literally were naming places <laughs> rather than actually kind of providing opportunities to use English. And they were excited. And so even when they gave feedback to the teacher, they were doing it in the L1, even though these kids were some of the strongest I'd seen and could have done it in English. So that, that's a really interesting example of when um, a teacher has done exactly what is, is being suggested. And because of the learner's enthusiasm, they're using all their languaging resources to do it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. They should be doing that. That's mm-hmm. natural. But what it that. tells us is that the assumption that's underpinning that approach to teaching isn't being discussed and thought about very much. Because unless you kind of in- instigate some kind of language police in the classroom, and I have seen teachers doing this, and it has worked to some extent, but I'm not very comfortable with it. In one classroom who walked around with yellow cards and red cards and gave students a red card if they held them using all I don't believe in that I don't, I don't believe, believe punitive it. teaching no yeah and and so and so changing that with something like project-based teaching mm. where especially a translingual project where the learners maybe have to interact with texts in a specific language target language where we use the notion of language in the kind of the monolingual sense of it and then have to produce a resource either in a different language or in the same language, even if they're interacting in the, using all the languaging resources they have, then in fact, you've got an opportunity there for the learners to, again, interact with language and use it. But it isn't the same as what's being suggested. It doesn't necessarily involve any spoken use or much spoken use of the, the so-called target language. And it's a complex thing. And so when I produce right. this tape model, one of the things I'm trying to suggest there is that translanguaging can be an important part of how teachers scaffold learner learning of a specific uh, structure or a specific uh, bit of lexis by coating it, by cloaking it, if you like, in language that is more familiar to them. This notion of cotex that Michael Lewis talks about. Mm-hmm. In a translingual framework, the cotex can be in the learner's first language, or rather in a really complex translingual framework. It can be using all the languages that the learners know. So, you know, you know that's a, a really key point, I think, about the fact that methodologies have been born in certain contexts. And when you transpose them over contexts, a lot of the things you presume to be true don't hold true. And what typically happens there is people then try to come up with solutions for how right. that, that can then work in that context. Or you do this, well, you try doing this. But in fact, the reality is you're just trying to impose something on a context where it hasn't developed. And the best way surely to, to work out how to teach effectively in those contexts is to work with the teachers themselves to develop a method which is appropriate. And, okay. and looking at that and coming back to the key kind of question that you answered earlier, can it work in those contexts? Yes, it can. But I've seen things like project-based learning work much more effectively. Project-based learning as defined in mainstream education, a more complex uh, thing than task-based learning. Uh, yeah. Not the same thing in my opinion. Um, Project-based learning can and does work well in those contexts, but so does a lot of explicit instruction because in so many contexts, if we take India as an example, in the vast majority of contexts, the learners only have a written uh, exam. 
And whilst they right. do have to produce some kind of written text in almost all kind of curricular contexts around the world, in mainstream education, there's only kind of um, written exams and sometimes listening, but rarely speaking because it takes just so much. In India, they even had a speaking exam in Maharashtra state. The problem was because of resources, the teachers examined their own students themselves. And guess what? They tended to bump up their marks as they would do <laughs> because their jobs depended on it. Anyway, I'm getting right. diverging from the point. <laughs> to make the point about kind of going back to this, yes, it can work in those contexts, but the key thing is that we need to work out what, what methodologies are working for the teachers that are working effectively in those contexts. Good. That, and, then, and then to share those with other teachers, which is my kind of fundamental model of change. Yeah. Before we started recording, we were talking about the, the seemingly semantical differences between a lot of these models. And the question, does it work? I mean, what does work mean? When we yeah. say a model works, uh, yeah. you give the example of, of the Indian students, their, their score is increasing. A lot of teachers would say that's not evidence of it, quote unquote, working because we should be learning, not teaching to a test, not to imply that's what was happening. But uh, mm -hmm. test scores aren't, of course, really the only important. or most important measure of, yeah. uh, of, quote unquote, working. So how would you define an exactly. approach working? But before I answer that question, let me just throw a few more questions back at you. Sure. If we were to ask those kids' parents about what the teacher should be doing, do you think sh the parents will say, which would they prioritize? The students getting through the exam at the end of this year or the students learning English in a way that they can use it in the future context? No, oh, the former. Yeah. yeah. And if we ask the school head teacher? That's a harder question, but I imagine they would give an answer of what they think the parents wanted. The school head teacher, their life is on the line in most contexts in India. If the kids don't do well, they right. will be out of a job. It's even more the former. Okay. And if you ask the district officer who's above the head teacher, you get the same point, answer. Right? I get the point. And, and then the whole curriculum authority, right? So again, They're context, context needs. And the right? teacher's job depends on that. But then if you ask the students, right, some students will be insightful and say things like, no, I do need English for my future career. But, but even then, if they do, every single student that their future career depends on them getting through the gateways of the exams in order to access that future career. Exams aren't something which is bolted on and appropriate into education systems. They're a fundamental part of what education systems are. You don't have them without assessment and assessment is incredibly difficult to do well, which is why all of them, the, the kind of the top exams, the most highly rated exams, despite the massive criticisms of them are incredibly expensive. And yeah. the vast majority of that expense goes towards, guess what, the speaking exam. Uh, if you take, say, the Cambridge FCE exam, the vast majority of cost goes towards marking the speaking exam and the examiners and so on. But anyway, um, we, we're getting again again away to on a different kind of tangent. That's here, okay. That's what podcasts are for. The question you were asking me about was, was um, whether... Um, what we mean by learning or what we mean in, in terms of appropriate outcome measures to yes. define it more widely. So um, what is an appropriate outcome measure by which we can measure uh, effectiveness of teaching? And that's a massively important question. It's a question that we need to always stand back as far as we can from, because if we talk about learning only, then we've already missed out a huge amount of what is important about the relationship between teachers and learners and classrooms as places of being. Classrooms aren't just places to get somewhere. Classrooms are places where we live, where teachers and learners live. And that relationship is an extremely important part of it. If you think about all of the great teachers you've had in your career, they haven't just taught you something. They've helped you to be who you are. Absolutely. 
some extent depended on their relationship, whether you love them or you hate them. And I still remember my French teacher, Mr. Edwards. He, oh. sang, he seemed, sounds like a great teacher now, but back then I absolutely hated him and he hated <laughs> me. But but he's still an important part of making me who I am now. I won't ask and, you why. And and and so, and so so yeah, no, you bet not. But but um, um, I just like to goof around in school, and he didn't want me to. But but um, you know, we we can talk about all kinds of things that, that teachers do and learners do to interact. And one of the issue with all of the a lot of the quantitative studies on teacher effectiveness is they tend to essentialize the outcome variable as learner performance in exams. And in um, a lot of the studies done in America, in North America, in Canada as well, and of course those exams are broader measures of students' ability, but they're still quite narrowly defined. And in order to understand what an effective teacher is, we need to step back from those as well. But all of this said, we can take a, a whole kind of range of definitions of what we perceive effectiveness to be. But it's really important to understand that wherever the question about how to teach is being discussed, there are a number of stakeholders involved in deciding what we consider mm -hmm. to be the appropriate outcome measure, which is why I went into that kind of spiel of yes. the parents, the kids, the head teacher, whatever, because an educational system is all of these people cannot be removed. You can't just centralize it to, well, the kid probably wants to learn to speak English to go to America. To do. No, no, no. <laughs> the kid may hate English. The kid may just need English to get to university. For sure. And, and, and, and, and so all of those things need to be decided in. And given the point I made earlier that in so many contexts around the world, kids aren't learning English because they've chosen to learn it. They're learning English because it's on the curriculum. That in those kind of contexts, the first and most important responsibility of the teacher is to ensure that that learner's education doesn't stop when they reach a certain point. Mm -hmm. And if you're in India and you're reaching grade 10, you're coming to your secondary school leaving exam. If you don't pass that exam in English, what they call the killer subject in India, then that's it. That's game over for you. Even if you're a world's leading mathematician, if you're a great poet, you don't get any further education. Right. And that's the reality of it. Um, and, so, and so it's really important to recognize that that is the reality and always has been for learning, for eons around the world, that learning, that uh, teaching and learning and assessment always have to happen together. So with all this talk and, and taking that into account, then all this talk about TBLT versus this versus the lexical approach and all these things, is that specific enough to just say that is for adult learners who want to improve themselves, who have come to the UK or North America to learn? You know, I don't think it is. I think I think that's pretty much the, the kind of the target audience within which these approaches have developed and been shown to work very effectively, all mm -hmm. of them in different ways. And we might add to that audiolingual teaching mm -hmm. showed itself to work effectively in the 1950s and 60s. Um, one of the incoming ITFL pre president, uh -huh. um, Gabriel Diaz Majoli, I remember him saying in a talk in London, he said, I learned to teach under audiolingual approach. And I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> that's pretty good, a pretty good advertisement for, for that approach. And there's a lovely paper just come out from Mike by Mike McCarthy, a, a great kind of expert on, on Lexus and so on. And he talks about his early experience. It's just come out this year, actually, in, in one of the Cambridge uh, journals. Um, about his experience of teaching the direct approach. And he makes the point that it worked. It had an impact. And so one of the key things that we have to take away is that all of these approaches can work and do work to some extent in some contexts. Because this question of what works, the outcome variable we're talking about, is complex and varied, and that changes over time. What was seen to be an appropriate objective, excuse me, of learning in, um, say, the so-called grammar translation, which again never existed, but as we've mm -hmm. kind of redefined the range of approaches in 
the 19th century and 18th century that we now call grammar translation would have been a very, very different outcome measure to what was used in audiolingual times. And that's different again to communicative language teaching. Right. And as we move into, or if we move into more translingual approaches, one of the things that some of, are, some of us are interested in learning is assessing the use of English resources in ways that are consistent with how those resources are used in the wider community where the learner is based. So if you look at the incredibly um, um, creative translingual practices that happen in, say, India, in an urban environment in Mumbai or in Delhi, and the way that English is used there, it isn't used separately. Those people are great users of English. You can see some of the most incredible wordplay, some of the most incredible manipulations of language, subversions of language. They're used in complex ways. And therefore, why are we actually therefore assessing learners in Indian classrooms using only English in a monolingual approach? What I've called monolanguaging, it's just not appropriate to who they are and what they do. And, and that would be a, a potential future. It may not go down that path. Those of us who are going on about translanguaging, we may be wrong. But if it does go down that path, then we would have a completely different conception of what is an appropriate outcome. I was going to ask you, do you, do you foresee that where international education is going into a translanguaging direction? Mm, international education, I wouldn't use that term, but, but I, I, I think definitely there's a question where we can look at much, much more flexible frameworks for understanding and assessing learning. And one, you know, constantly on that King's College is doing some really interesting research into this area and some of the papers he's published in um, modern language teaching, really interesting stuff on that. That, that that's a conversation for the future. I definitely okay. think that when it comes to assessing in Indian classrooms today, for example, um, and we don't just need to talk about India, but it's one context that's very central in my mind at the moment, that, that, that in those kind of contexts, some of us are saying that we need to have more flexibility in terms of how we understand and how we get learners to use English within examination context and with language learning context right. as well. Flexible is a, is a word I, I was focusing a lot on in preparing for the interview because I think that's just key to teaching and learning is, is being flexible. Mm -hmm. And I have a quote here from your paper. It's not your words, but you're quoting somebody else. And I, I know you know the answer to this, but I'm going to see if the listeners can figure it out. And it's describing an approach. And let's see if they, they can figure it out and then we'll talk about it, I hope. So this approach should not, of course, be interpreted too literally. These stages are not recipes for organizing all of our lessons. Since our main aim is to get the learners to communicate, we can reverse the sequence outlined above by first setting them tasks, which will require them to communicate as best they can with the language at their disposal, and then using the outcome as a way of deciding what new language needs to be presented and perhaps further practiced. Now, in modern contexts, that sounds like a TTT approach or a TBL approach, but actually, as you know, that's a quote from Don Byrne, and that's him talking about his own approach about PPP, which I find yeah. fascinating because modern, at least nowadays, it seems that the critiques of PPP is so rigid in that you cannot be flexible in the mm. approach. But Don Byrne was saying, well, why not? But that didn't catch on, as you write about. Exactly. And why yeah, not? Yeah. And that was in his second edition. He wrote that in 1986, mm -hmm. 10 years after, after the backlash was starting to happen because of the way that PPP had caught on so much right. in so many contexts. And as you say, it still does. It seems to happen in the 
very predictable sequence. And the reason it happens in that sequence is because it follows what we call skill acquisition theory. The assumption is that language learning should be following the same order that things like learning to play the piano or learning to ride a bike, where you show someone how to do it, to demonstrate, what is it, demonstrate, imitate, practice, yeah. model of the army, that, that, um, that you show someone how to do it, then you get them to practice it in baby steps, and then you give them the freedom to try it out. And so that's when you're kind of, you know, you're cycling without the, you know, the, uh, the what you call it, the little wheels on the side. Um, yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting about PPP is because of its relationship to skill acquisition theory, it keeps coming back. Even me, I keep trying to stop talking about it. I made a fundamental point that well, two basic points that it isn't non-communicative. And secondly, the research evidence isn't simply against it. It's complex, it's varied, and it's nuanced. Yes. Um, there's <laughs> possibly a balance of evidence against it, but it ain't strong and it ain't the most important factor. And given that it's, con it's much more catch-onable, it's much more consistent with curricular systems around the world, What's the big problem? Let's focus on something else. And it was annoying me that people would say, when I said to people, well, sometimes I do teach PPP, people would look at me like I was mad. And as you say, <laughs> the, the, you know, in, in 50 years' time, people are going to be scratching their heads trying to work out what the difference between these different approaches are. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Professional development has many faces. Workshops, webinars conference presentations, what it shouldn't have is a lack of continuity. Research has shown that professional development initiatives have a lasting impact when they adopt an ongoing approach to professional development and not just a one-off workshop. Through our professional development model, teachers progress along a continuum of development while making connections to their teaching context along the way. As they refine their practice, they enhance their ability to be responsive to the learners and acquire skills which help further learning outcomes. If you're a school seeking an innovative, evidence-based, and bottom-up approach to teacher education in your institute, we'd love to talk to you about how our program works. Contact us online at www.learnyourenglish.com or by email at info at learnyourenglish.com. Hey everyone, my name is Maurice and I'm from Ivory Coast. You're listening to the Teacher Talking Time to Learn Your English podcast. Coucou tout le monde, je m'appelle Maris et je viens de Côte d'Ivoire. Vous écoutez the Teacher Talking Time to Learn Your English podcast. Amusez-vous bien? Because in a classroom, if you watch the lessons, you would see very, very, unless you knew what to look for, you wouldn't actually spot it. Well, even inside of this TBLT world, you have the long version, you have the Willis version, you have the Ellis version, and they're not the same. So even within one quote-unquote approach, people cannot agree. So I don't expect exactly. consensus to be formed even on any other approach either. And Lewis yeah. famously said that his approach, lexical approach, I believe it was him, said his approach was actually unteachable, even though it works. So I don't know where that... I'm going to pivot here to, to back to the classroom and... and you know, our company was founded on hoping to bring the research to the classroom because we found that there was a gap between the research that was being conducted and getting it to the everyday teacher, so to speak. So how do we, taking all of this into account, how do we train teachers or help teachers to expand their toolbox, so to right, speak, right. with not using, as you suggest with Tate and, and all these, there's no one size fits all. It's a little bit of this and a little bit of that and depends whom we are teaching, of course. So mm -hmm. how do we train teachers better in 2020? 
Well, you notice there you you said it twice. You said, "How do we train teachers?" And then you corrected yourself, "How do we help teachers?" Uh, yes. And that's where the difference is. The metaphor that your company, I think, has, has adopted is to bridge, a Correct. bridge between research and practice. The metaphor itself implies, and I've used it myself, that these are kind of immutable things, mountains, which we cannot move. And we have to create a bridge across which some kind of traffic may happen. It ain't ever going to work very well because the bridge is going to get crowded. It's going to be a bottleneck. And so one of the things that some of us are arguing for is that if these things are separate, then there's a fundamental disconnect anyway, that these are separate mountains. And what I'm interested in doing is working out ways to stay on the side of practice without ever crossing the bridge and to develop our theories of learning and teaching from there. Okay. And so the the kind of the metaphor that you're, we're talking about here, the bridging the gap, is kind of based on the what Wallace, and I don't know if you know Wallace's 1991 book um, called Training Foreign Language Teachers, um, Michael J. Wallace, I'm showing it to the camera there, which isn't very useful for people listening. But, we'll we'll um, link it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. in, in this book, Michael J. Wallace, one of the annoying things is he actually rips it off Mary M. Kennedy, an American <laughs> writer writing about four years earlier. Wallace does not credit her. Mary M. Kennedy talks oh my about God. exactly the same three approaches and another one. She's a big writer in education in America, but nobody seems to have noticed this. Um, but Wallace talks about three of them. He talks about the craft model, which you can see on things like the CELTA and the CERT TESOL, the box of tricks that we give teachers to work with. Um, he talks about the applied science model which is the model that, um, if I may use Mike Long as an example, or Rod Ellis, that they perceive that to be an appropriate model for helping teachers to improve, mm -hmm. for instigating change in the classroom, that the scientists go off and find it out, and then teachers implement it. And then you've got the reflective model. And of course, that's what picked up in the 1980s. Why did it pick up in the 1980s? Because in American mainstream context for the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, they'd been trying to tell teachers how to teach. Something wasn't happening. Teachers didn't seem to be changing their practice. We got the qualitative research coming in. We got the whole reflective uh, movement happening, Donald Schoen particularly, but also other writers. And we suddenly realized that, okay, teachers are thinking, rationalizing being and we need to help them to explore their practice and here we move into the reflective model which is the third model that wallace talks about and that Miriam kennedy Miriam kennedy by the way also talks about um a case study model based on on um, kind of a law situation which is interesting because that has been used in certain contexts but anyway the key point being that i'm making is that a reflective model and a model where teachers explore a sp exploratory model is often a word i use um can be a really useful one. And one of my colleagues at the University of Warwick, Richard Smith and Paolo Rebolledo, they are two people who have developed and tried using, and, and it's now being used in other contexts as well, right. a model which includes an action research cycle, but also exploration. Great. And so that's a really interesting one. So it's called Exploratory Action Research, a really interesting model. And there's some free um, publications produced by the British Council on this that can be looked at. But there's also things like um, Exploratory Practice, which was uh, originated by Dick Allwright and continued by Judith Hanks at the University of Leeds. Uh, today. That's another alternative. And there's also other things which we tend to overlook, which are essentially practitioner-based ways of Researching may not be the right word, but exploring and analyzing our practice, such mm -hmm. as lesson study, if you've heard of that. Yes. Um, and such as things like using personal learning networks. Um, in India, there's a really interesting Great. project, the Tejas project, working with teachers in primary classrooms. Simon Borg, I think, was involved in it. And there they actually found that creating a really solid WhatsApp community of teachers, 
where the teachers oh. posted on the WhatsApp group their successes. Oh, I like it created this. a community of change among them. And that was a really important part because as teachers, we so often want to share with others what we've done, our successes. Yes. You know, we're often, not always, but we're often that kind of person. And it seems, at least my reading about the Tejas Project and meeting some of the teachers and seeing their their enthusiasm, that, that that's the kind of thing that can also help as a part of a teacher-oriented move towards improving practice. So yeah. for me personally, the I think the research still, still needs to exist, and I think even researchers still need to do what they want to do. It is really useful to have psychocognitive research to tell us about what happens in the brain of an individual when they're learning grammar for spoken usage yeah but when it comes to the classrooms that i'm working in as i demonstrated earlier with that kind of division that's only a small part of what we're talking about and even when we're in there you can still dispute some of the, the you know the evidence that's there and so and so you know it's a really important point that we need to keep coming back to the, the, the complexity of teaching and learning contexts Fantastic. and there's so many people mention it um the research evidence itself isn't necessarily going to apply and creating definitely creating some kind of means of communication is a good idea i'm not saying you should destroy the bridge or even the bridge metaphor but for me personally i want to stay on the side of the hill where the teachers are and sometimes to look across maybe at the other side, but always, <laughs> but never to allow it to dictate what we do. And with, in the case of, of the SLA and TBLT kind of, um, I was going to say mafiosi there, but there is a massive, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it is a massive group of people that when Huge. you start to disagree with them, you suddenly see this response that, that, um, that the, the kind of the heavy people come at you. Yeah. And and it's there's a, a lot of a lot of animosity towards anyone who's suggesting anything else, especially suggesting that something that they've rejected wanted to cull. Well, that's why we're so happy that yeah, you came on to talk about this because that's that's what we wanted. Not necessarily a counterpoint, but a, a balance in terms of yeah. voice uh, of that. Um, I think diversity. Let's let's keep the diversity. Let's not theory call as you know, and Wagner, who opposed um, the, the the suggestion by Mike Long way back in the early nineties yeah. that we should start theory calling. Um, you know, I, I believe very much in keeping that diversity because these are all resources that we draw upon. Absolutely. As thinking, reflective practitioners, we need to be the ones to solve the problems in our classroom. Reflective is a really important word, and we encourage that, and I hope all teachers encourage that, you know, a community of reflection and, and assessing lessons and working together and peer observations. And not we talked about punitive measures before, you know, mm -hmm. not having observations be merely punitive, but working together to observe and reflect on lesson outcomes. And did I achieve my outcome today? And if so great and if not why not and working together i think that's great and, and again flexible and, and things change and we talked earlier you know jane willis was a proponent of ppp in the 80s and then she, she right. changed her mind right so things things change and ppp today doesn't look the same as it did in the 70s and in the 80s and etc etc et and before we we finish i want to give you a chance to talk about your new model about tate and you're talking about the other side and, and rod ellis wrote a response and had some critiques of your of, of your approach yeah, let me just the mention show. What, the, what the Tate model is because an experienced yeah. teacher when I say this they'll say oh really that sounds bloody obvious okay. um, <laughs> so the Tate model is based on the research I did uh, just a couple of years ago where I looked at textbooks to ask the question is PPP the dominant model and the answer is no it isn't. What is dominant is this notion that I've called context analysis practice, what I call CAP. So what textbooks have done since at least 2000 is presented a text then there's analysis of language, which tends to, if you look at the, the kind of the bridging activity, 
tends to involve learners noticing the language in the text, which is according to some of the SLA research. Um, and then there's an analysis phase and then there's some kind of practice phase, whether it be control, whether it be a freer task, whatever. But it's still within what Ellis would call a task-supported approach, what Mike Long would call a focus on forms approach, right. in so much as it involves synthetic grammar syllabus. The reality is it doesn't. Textbook units are thematically based today in course books. Uh, it's simply not true that they're grammatically based. They're thematically based. Sometimes you have to search for the grammar in many of them, at least the ones I've been looking at in the UK. Yeah. Um, and, and that there is grammar in them and that the grammar is related to that, but it isn't the biggest part of the textbook today as it was uh, you know, a couple of decades ago. But anyway, we see this kind of context analysis practice through textbooks. And one of the things I was thinking, because I kind of believe in the wisdom of practice of the practitioner that, okay, what the teacher is doing is something which is appropriate, suitable, and working in some sense of working, right? Who's working, who's effectiveness, but it's working in that context that how can we tweak that model to allow for possibly greater opportunities to draw upon some of the things we know from the different sources of evidence we can look at. And so if we ask the question, if we take that kind of context analysis practice model, well, let's change a practice into a task and try to make it an opportunity to focus on meaningful language use first and foremost. It may be an opportunity for students to use language that's been taught in the analysis phase, but it could also be an opportunity for something else as well. So in the Tate model, which by the way is text, analysis, task, exploration, in the task stage, a teacher could introduce a task which would provide an opportunity to practice the language of the analysis phase. But if a teacher is working from a textual point of view and looking at uh, Lexis in the text, then the analysis phase may actually look at Lexis in the text. Mm. And then the task could be thematically related to the rest of the unit, which would be entirely consistent with, and in fact, it would be a task-based approach. And the exploration phase would then involve things like uh, a responsive focus on form, so afterwards, looking at some of the emergent language, dealing with that in ways that some of the, my colleagues here in the UK, uh, Nick Anden and, and Danny Norrington Davis have been talking about, actually researching how experienced teachers do um, responsive teaching, really interesting stuff from them. Um, that, that, that, that would be the final phase. And by putting that together, we've got something that is A, consistent with, fairly consistent with what teachers already do. And one of the things mm -hmm. I've learned working 20 years in classrooms not in the research room, is that if, if you can start where the teacher is and help the teachers to explore and to make tweaks to their practice that move them in the right direction, rather than saying, no, no, no, you've got the curriculum wrong. You've got to get rid of all that. Here, we'll start again. Clean table. Let's now start again. It doesn't work. Never has worked. Mm -hmm. It will get rejected or it'll get turned into what the teachers perceive to be appropriate, right. as, the, uh, you know, as, as has been demonstrated. Um, in, in Martin Lamb's seminal paper from the 1990s, The Consequences of Inset. Very good paper to read if you want to read that. Sure. Uh, in a very important tale about um, about um, um, how, how attempts to change teachers using an applied science model often doesn't work. Anyway, um, back to the point. So, so yeah, it's, it's if you can tweak what they're doing to move them in the right direction so that when it comes to that part of the lesson, where we've got an opportunity to get students to use language meaningfully, where we can get the focus to be on that first and foremost, then of course you can create an opportunity where learners can not only potentially use something they've learned earlier in the lesson, whether it be Lexis, whether it be grammar, whatever, but where they can also communicate meaningfully. And that will create the opportunities potentially for um, 
what Mike Long would call a responsive form focus, his focus on form, mm -hmm. where the teacher is actually providing at the point of need for the learner, or where you provide that kind of after the lesson focus, which is also important because when you've got a class of 30 or 40 kids, which is about the average in the world today, um, providing input at the point of need, when there's one of you and 15 pairs of them, and you've got a 40 minute lesson for which the task is probably not going to take up too long, just even getting round all of the pairs is going to be difficult. Hearing what they're saying is going to be even more difficult. And this is even before you've gone into the question of which languages they're using. But the key point being, there won't be enough. I've calculated it. If you if you take that approach with a class of 30 learners with an average syllabus that you get in the secondary school around a year, each learner will get, even at the most the most optimistic measures, 30 minutes of individual teacher support in the whole academic yeah. year. And in my opinion, that isn't enough because we know that students do need an explicit focus. And I don't think that's enough for what they need to continue developing in ways no that chance. doesn't cause all kinds of issues to do with learned selective attention and so on. Anyway, shut up, Jason. Get back to the point. So <laughs> the point I was making is that, and, and is, is that this model, you've got the four phases which are broadly consistent with, able to be used in classrooms without much change to things like curricula, to things like textbooks. And it's surprisingly consistent, not just with the global textbooks that often form the analysis, but also with local textbooks where texts tend to come at the start of units right. and where you've got analysis after texts. Unfortunately, what you often don't have in those units is tasks. But if you add on the project-based idea that I was talking about, where you get learners to use uh, to produce something in the task that is linguistically oriented towards what you're trying to teach them, then even if they're using other languaging resources to do it, it's all in the right direction. There's movement towards the outcomes that you want, which is learners being able to, for example, produce a written text that involves or even is in English, whatever you define. By right. That. I think that's an important point to make because you know, we're you're talking about working within context that teachers are already working. And we can talk about, you know, as you say, as you note in a lot of your articles, course books are not going away. So we can talk about a utopian view of the, the day with no course books and we can start from, from scratch, but that requires moving not one, not two, probably 10, 15 dozens of mountains in order to get to that that stage, right? So working with teachers and working with within their context, and a lot of books are set up in a way to be taskified, if I can use that word, even if they weren't necessarily designed that way. Working without a course book also requires a, a a lot of experience and a lot of training on the teacher's part and a lot of knowledge of how learning works. So again, con coming back to the beginning of needs analysis and, and, and frameworks and and working within contexts, you know, pre-service training, in-service training, context-specific, uh, How where would you put Tate in, in that? Is it a pre-service suitable? Is it in-service? Is it both? How would you, where would you place it? Yeah, I, I, I would... I think it's useful um, when you're working with teachers pre-service to help them to understand what's likely in their future and the near future, to help them to understand who they're going to be, what they're going to be doing, how they're going to be doing it. And it's a likely kind of set of events rather than telling them about how you think they should teach. So this is a kind of a socialization approach, the sociocultural approach towards training teachers to helping them to become accustomed towards what's going to happen. And one part of that would be 
introducing them to the materials they're going to use. So to answer your question more directly, I would say that yes, it does, because it's consistent with what's in the course books, you can get one, one very simple task to do with teachers pre-service is to get them to look at a course book, to notice the patterns in the course book, to notice what units there are, to notice whether it's consistent with other things they're learning on their course. So if they're on a kind of an MAT SOL where they're learning about aspects of SLA, then they may be able to identify what kind of curriculum is in there mm. and possibly have criticisms and possibly some praise for it as well. Um, but but the, the key point being that when, when they get down to it, they will see a structure that says, well, there seems to be a text quite early on and there seems to be something uh, a bit more kind of an inward focus. We haven't mentioned, of course, the nation model, but, um, you know, where you have the, the, the four strands of lexical learning, which nation talks about, these can be incorporated into that structure as well. So it's a very Great. flexible structure in that sense. Um, so, so yeah, the, you know, they're going to see that kind of structure in the course book, and that gives them an initial starting point for their teaching. Whether somebody agrees or doesn't agree with that being a good way to, to support teachers, especially if you're working on fairly intensive courses like the SOTA and the TESOL, then that's often the best you can do at this point mm -hmm. to get them ready for what they're going to experience in the future, rather than the, the other really interesting starting point and i know there are colleagues who would disagree with me where you get them to look actually at the language or the learner's needs and you build lessons up from that it's it's a possible way of working but i've never seen anybody who when they go into a teaching context they manage to maintain that in their early months or years of teaching no. as opposed to the other option which is essentially they take what's given to them as in mainstream teaching it might be a scheme of work right. and materials relating to that um, and in, in a lot of EFL, as it's so-called, there's a textbook. This is the book for your class. And for whilst sure. the teacher can have freedom in terms of which bits to do, what order to do it in, that's pretty much mandated or, or suggested as, as a choice. And the teacher often doesn't have the time or the expertise to do anything different. That isn't to say that they shouldn't. It's just to say that this is a practical. It's a, uh, it's a luxury of experience, for sure, yeah, to be able to, exactly. to pivot and, and do that. You also, to your credit, talk about limitations with Tate. And I noticed that you, you said it's not necessarily advisable or applicable for ESP or English for specific purposes. And I'm wondering why, why you say that. Well, I give give you an example of uh, business English learners. So, mm -hmm. if you're working in a kind of a private language institution in the West, and you've got a group of business English learners, that that, that is a prime context in which a task-based approach is going to work. Small classes, um, people who are already using language fairly well, focus on the outcome that they need, the transactional outcome they need out of the interaction, and focus on where the language, get them doing it, and then focus on the language at the point of need. It's perfect for that, that kind of context. So that would be a type of English for specific purposes where this kind of model simply isn't necessary. An experienced teacher will be able to do something much more effective without it. Um, and that's one of several kind of places. I also mentioned in the blog post I wrote about Tate, a lot more kind of reservations about kind of, um, yeah, all, all kinds of things, and it's but that's the important thing to be reflexive about these things because if you're suggesting something, and I suggest it very much as not because I think this is the most important thing about teaching and learning, but because I think that this dominance of assumptions that oh this is what the research is telling us, and if you're not doing it that way, you're doing it wrong. I disagree with that so strongly, um, and and what I'm proposing here is ways where we can actually show that what teachers are doing or could be doing don't have to change that much to be to acknowledge and recognize aspects of what we do know about how languages are learned or at least how 
grammar is learned for spoken usage. <laughs> Wonderful. What I was talking about. Wonderful. Okay. And uh, I know, again, the situation right now is not optimal, but what's next for you, Jason? What are you working on? I know travel is limited, but uh, mm. if you were to travel or what, what's your next project? What, we'll post all of your links in our show notes <laughs> and direct people to your website, but what's the, what's the next project for Jason Anderson? Well, um, yeah, currently working again on a, a potentially a project coming up in India. Um, uh, I've already written, co-written one book on the educational system in India uh, for British Council, and there's probably another one of those in the pipeline uh, coming up. And that's quite intimidating. India is now the world's largest educational system, so, so it's it that's that's one where I'm you know, quite challenged in itself to learn and to understand enough about it. So I would say my focus is there for the time being and potentially research projects as well uh, that's happening there. Um, and it's a context which I'm very much interested in. I love India. I love working there. Um, so that's pretty much where my brain is at the moment. Okay. It's difficult to think beyond that. That's a lot. Hopefully yeah. other things will present themselves in the future as well. Wonderful. And uh, thank you again for joining us. We'll link all of your work in our show notes, including the original article for Tate's, uh, Rod Ellis's response to you, uh, where he calls it. <laughs> I found that interesting, I, I, the old back and forth. He calls your approach structural, which you very much deny in, in your response to him as well. So we'll link all yeah. of those below. Um, do you have a 30-second response? To that why it's not no, structural no. I, and I would I would suggest everyone reads it because yeah. if most people had to choose between Rod Ellis's opinion and mine I know what they would probably choose but the the, the response to Ellis mentions this point about mm -hmm. the danger of the narrowly focused SLA canon at least their SLA canon it's important to understand that the words SLA it's not my favorite term I prefer to talk about additional language learning is is essentially one narrative through the SLA literature um, that kind of teleologically leads to task-based language teaching as being the best uh, outcome. But but the, the point is that there are different ways to look at it. And and as we move towards more more complex multilingual contexts, as we move towards the re-emergence of written language use through keyboards, through texting, whatever, um, then we need to question a lot of the assumptions implicit about not just what language is, not just how language is learned, but what language learning communities are what they're like, what they do. And as you go to your lesson this evening or this afternoon, maybe you have a lesson or, yeah. or tomorrow, you know, one of the fascinating things is that the challenges of the current time with, with the coronavirus mean that we're, we're now being forced to work in completely different ways in the classroom where we need to work out new, if you like, methods. How do I teach in this context? The most common question in all of the teaching communities. And that's also changing. And, and, and that will have a fundamental impact on teaching as well for the future. There may be a new and one that comes about after all this is over. One of the important things to remember is that task-based language teaching ain't the new kid on the block anymore. It's been around for 30, 40 years. And you know, there are, there are questions about whether language has changed so much, our understanding of who we are, why we're learning language, what we're doing with it in the future, whether that kind of approach is still relevant. Wonderful. Great final thought. I think that's a great one. And hopefully we'll get the discussion going online and, and have people contribute and see what they think about it. So Jason, thank you very much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.